Just because it isn't happening here doesn't mean it isn't happening. The fox felt the car slow before the boy did, as he felt everything first. Through the pads of his paws, along his spine, and the sensitive whiskers at his wrist. By the vibrations, he learned also that the road had grown coarser. He stretched up from the boy's lap and sniffed at the threads of scent leaking in through the window, which told him that they were now traveling into woodlands. The sharp odors of pine, wood, bark, cones, and needles slivered through the air like blades, but beneath that the fox recognized softer clover and wild garlic and ferns, and also a hundred things he had never encountered before, but that smelled green and urgent. The boy sensed something now, too. He pulled his pet back to him and gripped his baseball glove more tightly. The boy's anxiety surprised the fox. The few times they had traveled in the car before, the boy had been calm or even excited. The fox nudged his muzzle into the glove's webbing, although he hated the smell of leather. His boy always laughed when he did this. He would close the glove around the pet's head, play wrestling, and in this way, the fox would distract him. But today the boy lifted his pet and buried his face in the fox's white ruff, pressing hard. It was then that the fox realized that the boy was crying. He twisted around to study his face to be sure. Yes, crying. Although without sound, something the fox had never known him to do. The boy hadn't shed tears for a very long time, but the fox remembered. Always before, he had cried out, as if to demand attention to be paid to the curious occurrence of salty water streaming from his eyes. The fox licked at the tears and then grew more confused. There was no scent of blood. He squirmed out of the boy's arms to inspect his human more carefully, alarmed that he could have failed to notice an injury, although his sense of smell was never wrong. No, no blood, not even the underskin pooling of a bruise or the marrow leak of a cracked bone, which had happened once. The car pulled to the right, and the suitcase beside them shifted. By its scent, the fox knew it held the boy's clothing and the things from his room he handled most often, the photo he kept on top of his bureau and the items he hid in the bottom drawer. He pawed at a corner, hoping to pry the suitcase open enough for the boy's weak nose to smell his favored things and be comforted. But just then, the car slowed again, this time to a rumbling crawl. The boy slumped forward, his head in his hands. The fox's heartbeat climbed, and the brushy hairs of his tail lifted. The charred metal scent of the father's new clothing was burning his throat. He leapt to the window and scratched at it. Sometimes at home, his boy would raise a similar glass wall if he did this. He always felt better when the glass wall was lifted. Instead, the boy pulled him down onto his lap again and spoke to his father in a begging tone. The fox had learned the meaning of many human words and he heard him use one of them now. No. Often the word no was linked to one of the two names he knew. His own. And his boys. He listened carefully, but today it was just no, pleaded to the father over and over. The car juddered to a full stop and tilted off to the right, a cloud of dust rising beyond the window. 
The father reached over the seat, and after saying something to his son in a soft voice that didn't match his hard lie scent, he grasped the fox by the scruff of the neck. His boy did not resist, so the fox did not resist. He hung limp and vulnerable in the man's grasp, although he was now frightened enough to nip. He would not displease his humans today. The father opened the car door and strode over to the patchy weeds to the edge of the wood. The boy got out and followed. The father set the fox down, and the fox bounded out of his reach. He locked his gaze on his two humans, surprised to notice that they were nearly the same height now. The boy had grown very tall recently. The father pointed to the woods. The boy looked at his father for a long moment, his eyes streaming again. And then he dried his face with the neck of his t-shirt and nodded. He reached into his jeans pocket and withdrew an old plastic soldier, the fox's favorite toy. The fox came alert, ready for the familiar game. His boy would throw the toy and he would track it down, a feat the boy always seemed to find remarkable. He would retrieve the toy and wait with it in his mouth until the boy found him and took it back to toss it again. And sure enough, the boy held the toy soldier aloft and then hurled it into the woods. The fox's relief, they were only here to play a game, made him careless. He streaked towards the woods without looking back to his humans. If he had, he would have seen the boy wrench away from his father and cross his arms over his face, and he would have returned. Whatever his boy needed, protection, distraction, affection, he would have offered. Instead, he set off after the toy, finding it was slightly more difficult than usual as there were so many other, fresher odors in the woods. But only slightly. After all, the scent of his boy was also on the toy. That scent he could find anywhere. The toy soldier lay face down in the burled root of a butternut tree, as if it had pitched itself there in despair. His rifle, its butt pressed tirelessly against his face, was buried to the hilt in leaf litter. The fox nudged the toy free, took it between his teeth, and rose on his haunches to allow his boy to find him. In the still woods, the only movement were the bars of sun glinting like green glass through the leafy canopy. He stretched higher. There was no sign of his boy. A prickle of worry shivered up the fox's spine. He dropped the toy and barked. There was no response. He barked again, and again was answered only by silence. If this was a new game, he did not like it. He picked up the toy soldier and began to retrace his trail. As he loped out of the woods, a jay streaked above him, shrieking. The fox froze, torn. His boy was waiting to play the game, but birds? Hours upon hours he had watched birds from his pen, quivering at the sight of them slicing the sky as recklessly as lightning he often saw on summer evenings. The freedom of their flights always mesmerized him. The jay called again deeper in the forest now, but answered by a chorus of reply. For one more moment, the fox hesitated, peering into the trees for another sight of the electric blue wedge. And then, behind him, he heard a car door slam, and then another. He bounded at full speed, heedless of the briars that tore his cheeks. The car's engine roared to life, and the fox skidded to a stop at the edge of the road. His boy rolled down the window, and reached his arms out. And as the car sped away, in pelting spray of gravel, the father cried out the boy's name, Peter! And the boy cried out, 
the only other name the fox knew. Pax! So there were lots of them. Peter heard how stupid it sounded, but he couldn't help repeating it. Lots. He plowed his fingers through the heap of plastic soldiers in the battered cookie tin, identical except for their poses, standing, kneeling, and prone, all with rifles pressed hard to their olive-green cheeks. I always thought he had just one. No, I was always stepping on them. He must have had hundreds, a whole army of them. The grandfather laughed at his accidental joke, but Peter didn't. He turned his head and looked intently out the window, as if he had just caught sight of something in the darkening backyard. He raised a hand to draw his knuckles up on his jaw, exactly the way his father rasped his beard stubble, and wiped surreptitiously at the tears that had brimmed. What kind of a baby cried about something like this? And why was he crying at all, anyway? He was twelve. He hadn't cried for years. Not even when he fractured his thumb, bare-handing Josh Horahan's pop fly. That had hurt a lot. But he'd only cursed through the pain, waiting for the coach for x-rays. Man up. But today, twice. Peter lifted a soldier from the tin and drifted back to the day he'd found one just like it on his father's desk. What's this? he asked, holding it up. Peter's father had reached over and taken it, his face softening. Huh, been a long time. That was my favorite toy when I was a kid. Can I have it? His dad tossed the soldier back. Sure. Peter had set it up in the windowsill beside his bed, pointing the little plastic rifle out the, satisf out the window in a satisfying show of defense. But within the hour, Pax had swiped it, which made Peter laugh. Just like him, Pax had to have it. Peter dropped the toy back into the tin and was just about to snap the lid back on when he noticed the edge of a yellowed photograph sticking up from the mound of soldiers. He tugged it free, his dad, at maybe ten or eleven, with one arm draped around a dog. Looked like part collie, part a hundred other things. Looked like a good dog, the kind you could tell your own son about. I never knew Dad had a dog, he said, passing the photo to his grandfather. That's Duke. Dumbest creature ever born. Always underfoot. The old man looked more closely at the picture, and then over at Peter as if seeing something for the first time. You've got that same black hair as your father. He rubbed at the fringe of the gray fuzz banding the top of his head. I had it too, way back. And look, he was scrawny then too. Same as you. Same as me. With those ears like a jug. The men in our family, I guess our apples don't fall far from the tree, do they? No, sir. People, Peter forced a smile, but it didn't hold up. Underfoot. That was the word Peter's father had used. He can't have a fox underfoot. He doesn't move as fast as he used to. You stay out of the way, too. He's not used to having a kid around. You know, war came and I went and I served, like my father, like your father now. Duty calls, and we answer in this family. No, sir, our apples don't fall far from the tree. He handed back the photo. Your father and that dog, they were inseparable. I'd almost forgotten. Peter put the photo back into the tin and pressed the lid down tight, then slid it under the bed, where he'd found it. He looked out the window again. He couldn't risk talking about pets right now. He didn't want to hear about duty. He didn't want to hear about any more about apples and the trees they were stuck underneath. What time does school start here? he asked, 
not turning around. Eight. They said to show up early, introduce yourself to the homeroom teacher. Mrs. Mirez or Ramirez something. I got you some supplies. The old man nodded over to the spiral notebook, a beat-up thermos, and a bunch of stubby pencils banded together with a thick rubber band. Peter walked over to the desk and put everything into his backpack. Thanks. Bus or walk? Walk. Your father went to that school, and he walked. Follow Ash to the end, turn right on School Street, and you'll see it. Big brick building. School Street. Get it? You leave by 7.30, you'll have plenty of time. Peter nodded. He wanted to be left alone. Okay. I'm all set. I guess I'll go to bed. Good, his grandfather replied, not bothering to hide the relief in his voice. He left, closing the door firmly behind him as if to say, You can have this room, but the rest of the house is mine. Peter stood by the door, listening to him walk away. After a minute, he heard the sound of dishes clattering in the sink. He pictured his grandfather in the cramped kitchen where they'd eaten their silent dinner of stew. The kitchen that reeked so strongly of fried onions that Peter figured the smell would outlive his grandfather. After a hundred years of scrubbing by a dozen different families, this house would probably still smell bitter. Peter heard his grandfather shuffle back along the hall to his bedroom, and then the low spark of the television caught, the volume turned down, an agitated news commentator barely audible. Only then did he toe off his sneakers and lie down on the narrow bed. Six months, maybe more, of living here with his grandfather, who always seemed on the verge of blowing up. "'What's he always so mad about anyway?' Peter asked his father once, years ago. "'Everything. Life,' his father had answered. "'He got worse after your grandmother died.' After his own mother had died, Peter had watched his father anxiously. At first, there had just been a frightening silence." but gradually his face had hardened into a permanent threat of scowl, and his hands clenched at his fists by his sides, as if itching for something to set him off. Peter learned to avoid being that something, learned to stay out of his way. The smell of stale grease and onions crawled over him, seeping from the walls, from the bed itself. He opened the window beside him. The April breeze that blew in was chilly. Pax had never been alone before, except in his pen. Peter tried to extinguish the last sight he'd had of his fox. He probably hadn't followed the car for long, but the image of him flopping down on the gravel shoulder, confused, was worse. Peter's anxiety began to stir. All day, the whole ride here, Peter was sensing it coiling. It always seemed to snake like that. His anxiety waiting just out of sight, ready to slither up his spine, hissing its familiar taunt. You aren't where you should be. Something bad is about to happen because you aren't where you should be. He rolled over and pulled the cookie tin out from under his bed. He fished out the photo of his father, with the one arm slung so casually around the black and white dog, as if he had never worried he could lose him. Inseparable. He hadn't missed that note of pride that had entered his grandfather's voice as he said it. Of course he'd been proud. He'd raised a son who knew about loyalty and responsibility. Who knew that a kid and his pet should be inseparable. Suddenly, the word itself seemed like an accusation. He and Pax. What were they, then? Separable? They weren't, though. 
Sometimes, in fact, Peter had a strange sensation that he and Pax merged. The first time it happened, he had been the first time he'd taken Pax outdoors. The kid had seen a bird, and it had strained against the leash, trembling as if though electrified. And Peter had seen the bird through Pax's eyes, the miraculous lightning of flight, the impossible freedom and speed. He'd felt his own skin thrill in full-body shivers, and his own shoulders burn as if though yearning for wings. It happened again this afternoon. He had felt the car spin away, as though he were the one being left. His heart had quickened with panic. Tears stung again, and Peter palmed them with his frustrated swipes. His father had said it had been the right thing to do. War is coming. It means sacrifices for everybody. I have to serve. It's my duty. And you have to go away. Of course, he'd been half expecting it. Two of his friend's family had already packed up and left when the evacuation rumors had begun. What he hadn't expected was the rest, the worst part. And that fox? Well, it's time to send him back into the wild anyway. The coyote howled then, so nearby that it made Peter jump. A second one answered, and then a third. Peter sat up and slammed the window shut, but it was too late. The yips and yowls and what they meant were in his head now. Peter had only two bad memories of his mother. He had a lot of good ones, too, and he often took those out to comfort himself, although he worried that they might fade from so much exposure. But the two bad ones had buried deep. He did everything in his power to keep them buried. Now the coyotes were banging in his head, unearthing one of them. When he'd been about five, he'd come upon his mother standing dismayed beside a bed of blood-red tulips. Half of them were standing at attention, half of them splayed over the ground, their blossoms crumpling. A rabbit got them. He must think the stems are delicious, the little devil. Peter had helped his father set a trap that night. We won't hurt him, right? Fine, we'll just catch him, then drive him out to the next town. Let him eat somebody else's tulips. Peter had baited the trap himself with a carrot, then begged his father to let him sleep in the garden to keep watch. His father had said no, but helped him to set an alarm clock so he'd be the first to awaken. When it went off, Peter had run into his mother's room to lead her outside by the hand to see the surprise. The trap lay on its side. At the bottom of its freshly scraped crater, at least five feet across, inside was a baby rabbit, dead. There wasn't a single mark on its little body, but the cage was scratched and dented, and the ground all around clawed to rubble. Coyotes, his father said, joining them. They must have scared it to death trying to get in, and none of us even woke up. Peter's mother had opened the trap and lifted out the lifeless form. She held it to her cheek. They were just tulips, only a few tulips. Peter found the carrot one end nibbled off, and threw it as far as he could. Then his mother had placed the rabbit's body in his cupped palms and gone to get a shovel. With a single finger, Peter had traced its ears, unfurling like ferns from its face, and its paws miraculously tiny, and the soft fur of its neck, slick with his mother's tears. When she returned, his mother had touched his face, which burned with shame. It's okay. You didn't know. But it wasn't okay. 
For a long time afterward, when Peter closed his eyes, he'd seen coyotes, their claws raking the dirt, their jaws snapping. He saw himself where he should have been, keeping watch in the garden that night. Over and over, he saw himself doing what he should have, rising from his sleeping bed, finding a rock and hurling it. He saw the coyotes fleeing back into the darkness, and he saw himself opening the trap to set the rabbit free. And with that memory, the anxiety snake struck so hard that it stunned Peter's breath out of him. He hadn't been where he should have been the night the coyotes killed the rabbit, and he wasn't where he should be now. He gasped to fill his lungs and sat bolt upright. He tore the photo in half, and then in half again and pitched the pieces under the bed. Leaving packs hadn't been the right thing to do. He jumped to his feet. He'd already lost a lot of time. He fished some cargoes, a long-sleeved camouflage t-shirt, and a fleece sweatshirt from his suitcase, and then an extra set of underwear and socks. He stuffed everything into his backpack except for the sweatshirt, which he tied around his waist. Jackknife in his jeans pocket. Wallet. He debated for a minute between his hiking boots and sneakers and decided on the boots, although he didn't put them on. He walked around the room, hoping to find a flashlight or anything resembling camping equipment. The room had been his father's when he had been a boy, but aside from a few books on the shelf, it was clear his grandfather had cleaned all his things out. The cookie tin had seemed to surprise him, an oversight. Peter bumped his fingers over the spines of the books. An atlas. He pulled it down, amazed at his luck, and flipped through it until he came upon the map that showed the route he and his father had traveled. You'll only be three hundred miles away. His father had tried to bridge the silence of the drive a couple of times. I get a day off, I'll come. Peter had known that it would never happen. They didn't give up days off and war. Besides, it wasn't his father he was already missing. And then he saw something he hadn't realized. The highway snaked around a long range of foothills. If he cut straight across those instead of following the highway, he could save a lot of time, plus reduce the risk of being caught. He started to rip the page, then realized he couldn't leave his grandfather with such an obvious clue. Instead, he studied the map for a long moment, then replaced the atlas on the shelf. Three hundred miles. It looked like he could shave off a hundred of them by taking the shortcut, so say around two hundred miles. If he could walk at least thirty miles a day, he could make it in less than a week. They left packs at the head of the access road that led to the ruins of an old rope mill. Peter had insisted on this road because hardly anyone ever used it. Packs didn't know about traffic, and because there were woods and fields all around. He'd go back and find packs there waiting in seven days. He wouldn't let himself think about what might happen to a tame fox in those seven days. No. Pax would be waiting at the side of the road right where they'd left him. He'd be hungry for sure and probably scared, but he'd be okay. Peter would take him home. They would stay there. Just let someone try and make him leave this time. That was the right thing to do. He and Pax, inseparable. He glanced around the room again, resisting the urge to just run. He couldn't afford to miss anything. The bed... He pulled the blanket off, rumpled the sheets, and punched the pillow until it looked slept on. From his suitcase, he took out the picture of his mother he'd kept in his bureau, the one taken on her last birthday, holding up the kite Peter had made for her, and smiling as if she'd never had a better present in her life, and slid it into his backpack.
Next, he pulled out the things of hers that he'd kept hidden in the bottom drawer at home. Her gardening gloves, still smudged with the last soil she'd ever lifted. A box of her favorite tea, which had long ago lost its peppermint scent. The thick candy cane-striped knee socks she wore in winter. He touched them all, wishing he could take everything back home where it belonged, and then choose the smallest of the items, a gold bracelet with an enameled phoenix charm she'd worn every day, and tucked it into the middle of his backpack with the photo. Peter surveyed the room for the last time. He eyed his baseball glove and then crossed to the bureau and stuffed them into the backpack. They didn't weigh much, and he'd want to leave them when he got back home. Besides, he just felt better when he had them. Then he eased the door open and crept into the kitchen. He set the backpack on the oak table, and in the dim of the light from above the stove, he began to pack supplies. A box of raisins, a sleeve of crackers, and a half-empty jar of peanut butter. Packs would come out of any hiding spot for peanut butter. From the refrigerator, he took a bunch of string cheese sticks and two oranges. He filled the thermos with water and then hunted through drawers until he found matches, which he wrapped in tinfoil. Under the sink, he scored two lucky finds, a roll of duct tape and a box of heavy-duty garbage bags. A tarp would have been better, but he took two bags with gratitude and zipped the back. Finally, he took a sheet of paper from the pad beside the phone and began a note. Dear Grandfather, Peter looked at the words for a minute as if they were a foreign language and then crumpled the paper up and started a new note. I left early. Wanted to get a good start on school. See you tonight. He stared at the page for a while, too, wondering if it sounded as guilty as he felt. At last, he added, Thanks for everything. Peter. Placed the note under the salt shaker and slipped out. On the brick walk, he shrugged on his sweatshirt and crouched to lace his boots. He straightened up and shouldered his backpack. Then he took a moment to look around. The house behind him looked smaller than it had when he'd arrived, as if it were already receding into the past. Across the street, clouds scudded along the horizon, and a half-moon suddenly emerged, brightening the road ahead.